Thanks to our sponsor, Walker Digital, who have stepped in to help the Numbers Game podcast with their social media. Walker Digital are a digital marketing agency covering strategy, content, video, implementation, and education. The team at Walker have spread the word of our clients and love working with businesses doing good things helping them to grow and reach more people so they can scale and get larger. I know personally, the first thing I did when growing our business was to outsource social media, blogs, and copywriting because I knew it was something that was not the best use of my time. And the team at Walker Digital smashed it. Sometimes you need to walk before you can run. Find out more at their website, wlkr.digital. This podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. The conversations are of a general nature and do not qualify as financial or tax advice. We recommend before you make any financial decisions, you consult a licensed professional. Individuals on the podcast may hold positions in the companies discussed. Welcome to episode 19 of The Numbers Game. I'm here with Nick and Marty, my lovely co-hosts. How are you going today, boys? You guys well? I'm going well, Jace. Thanks for saying lovely. I was thinking about the Simon and Garfunkel song this morning, uh, Mrs. Robinson, and I couldn't get you out of my head, mate. So I'm really looking forward to today and seeing where it goes. Nick, how are you going? I'm going well, mate. Who knows? You might give us a rendition of that at some stage. Here's it... to you, Jason Robinson. Oh. Numbers <laughs> are the things that you know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway, enough of me. Enough of me. Mate, if we weren't going to rise to the get top, like, we could just get a snip of that. I think that's just going to take us all the way to the top. <laughs> Guys, on today's episode, let's crack into it. We've got plenty to go through. We're talking, uh, well, for me today, I've got who is on the ATO's hit list. What have you got for us, Nick? Uh, I'm going to talk about the buy now, pay later space and uh, one of the biggest deals that's been done in Australian history. And I'm going to talk about business plans, why you should have one and what you should do and the consequences of not having one. So it's uh, it's going to be a good one. Let's play. Guys, excited for reading the play today. There's been some huge news that Nick got his name onto first that he was going to share for reading the play. Uh, as always, it's interesting facts, things in the news that caught our attention. And uh, Nick, going to throw it to you because I actually wanted this one. But first in best dressed, take it away, mate. First in best dressed, and as soon as I saw the headlines, I was taking notes for our episode this week, but most people are probably aware of, or most people in business will know who Nick Molnar and Anthony Isen are, two young guys from Australia who created the business Afterpay. Um, Afterpay, not yet to be acquired, but it, there is a deal for Afterpay to be acquired by, by Square, which is a payments-based uh, system from the US. Um, anyone who's been to a coffee shop, and has tapped their their card on that little white square, that is square. So they have agreed to purchase Afterpay for a price of $39 billion, which is the biggest acquisition that's happened uh, in Australia's history. Prior, just to put that into context, Marty, do you know who the, the second biggest was or what the last biggest deal was? It wasn't Go One, was it? I don't know. It was Go One. That's all right. The last biggest... Uh, M&A deal or mergers, mergers and acquisitions deal uh, was Westfield Corp takeover in 2018, which was $27 billion. So wow. puts this into context at $39 billion, how big this is. Um, Nick Molnar and Anthony Eisen will, will collect a cool $2.7 billion each in Square stock, um, which will be listed on both the NASDAQ and the ASX. So not a bad deal for the boys. Um, why would Square buy Afterpay? So the buy now, pay later space is something that, that's growing and growing and everyone wants a piece of it. 
Apple, PayPal. So these are some of the big competitors now that are entering the US market. What does Square get with Afterpay? It gets a ready-made buy now, pay later platform, and they can then start to attack that market themselves. So huge news for Australia, huge news for Nick Molnar and Anthony Ison. And um, yeah, look, let yet to be approved by shareholders. Shareholders need to approve the deal, but um, I'd say it's pretty much a pretty much a done deal. And the next question is, who's next? There, there seems to be some contraction in that mm. space. So you've got the likes of Zip. Is someone going to pick them up for their buy now, pay later platform? One of these big players because the big businesses are all getting into it. It's amazing to give you some scope on on that value. Uh, $39 billion is half the value of the ANZ Bank. Like I heard that during the week, I thought, gee, that is that is some big, big money. Were you surprised um, that the boys only had two billion, roughly, in, two to three billion, roughly, left in shares each on a thirty-nine billion dollar acquisition? I look at it. May sound surprising, um, uh, but no, not not for me. But I think anyone out there might, you know, think that that doesn't really sound right that they own the business. But Afterpay was a listed entity, so you know, I'm sure half of our listeners have got Afterpay stock. So that that's that's mm. that's an easy way to explain it. Just on that, the shares jumped twenty-seven percent. Uh, on open um, on the announcement, and I wow. think they peaked at maybe a thirty percent jump from their from their uh, price before the announcement. So, yeah, two. Well, it was not just Afterpay shares that jumped, but also Squares did. So, it was two point seven billion. Who knows what it was by the end of the day uh, with the jump in the yeah. Square share price? So, yeah, it's true. Look, good on them. Uh, watched a sixty minutes uh, episode on them uh, maybe three or four months ago, and. Just a couple of good Aussie guys just doing good things and having great ideas. So congrats. Such a simple concept too, Nick. Just uh, lay-by, but uh, automated. It was um, so simple and yet such a great result. So well done. Good to see the Aussies doing well. Uh, Jason, what do you got for us? Well, yeah, mate, I was just going to say it'll be an interesting space to watch for a couple of years as all the competitors, I mean, Afterpay's had a huge head start and they've done phenomenal. But if Apple Pay does their thing and... Combank launches their one and PayPal does their one. It starts to become a pretty crowded space. And I think Afterpay's probably got the deal at the right time and a few more years for regulation to catch up. I reckon, I don't know, there's just some kind of gut feel I've got about that space. I was yeah, walking with a friend this morning and yeah, he reckons in the next couple of years, it'll just be blown up that market. But hey, watch that space. Who knows? Yeah. And Jace, one thing I didn't mention, and this is probably something you can comment on being an accountant and understanding business valuations. But the price at $39 billion actually represents 42 times Afterpay's 2021 revenue. That's a huge number. It's a huge number when we compare it to what businesses go for in our industry and probably most industries, to be honest, because this is obviously a tech business. So, Yeah, it's massive. My, my thoughts there, mate, are that you know the US market is huge compared to what we've got here in Australia. And Afterpay, the amount of customers they've got at the moment, it's a drop in the ocean compared to what they'll be able to grab in America if um, Jack Dorsey and, and Square can get behind it and roll it out through their platform. You imagine how many users in the US are going to have instant access to Afterpay through that platform. I dare say that you know that 40 times multiple of this year's revenue, they'll catch that up in no time at all with the uh, with the right rollout plan. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Jack because this might help people understand where the price of 39 billion came from. But he's obviously the founder of Twitter. So for those who don't know who he is, so an individual that's doing very well. Yeah, I think uh, he sold some NFTs at some point. We talked about Jack back at the NFT episode. Okay. So he's a busy man, Jack. I love it. 
Um, on the note of $39 billion, I've got that number close to it in, in what I've got to talk about. So as the exciting accountant on the uh, show, I've got uh, come across an article and it's the ATO's warning and it comes out every year and I think it changes every couple of weeks just to really throw the warning to a whole bunch of different people. But this year they're talking about 1.8 million property owners to expect consequences when they do their tax wrong. So what they're saying is, and where the number comes in, there's $38 billion in deductions in the 2020 financial year. Um, Tim Lowe came out and said those deductions are being looked at closely because a lot of them are being put through wrong. So if you're lodging your own tax return or you know, you're going to an accountant who might not be up to date with all the newest rules, be careful with what you're putting through under your investment property section of your tax return. So thinking you've got to put in all your income, You've got to put in your capital gains if you've sold your property. Now, it's not just your investment property. If you've got a holiday home that you've been using just for the family, please don't forget that when you sell that, that's not your main residence. You've got capital gains tax to pay. Um, the ATO reckon that 70% of investors' tax returns that they've reviewed have had the wrong figures. So imagine they review 100 tax returns, 70 of them were wrong for what's been putting through in the investment property section. So it's pretty good hit rate um, if the ATO are going to look into it and... Um, you know, finding that many mistakes. You think they're mistakes? <laughs> Good question, Nick. Um, I think it might be some creative accounting for some people that are lodging their own tax returns. Um, you know, we. I think one of the things now is they've taken away travel to your investment property. And I think that one that people used to think, oh, I've got an investment property in Brisbane, book a flight when back in the day when we were allowed out of our apartments and out of our homes to travel between states. And you'd fly to Brisbane, you'd look at your investment property, but you'd probably, you know, and claim that as a tax deduction, that's gone. And I think for a couple of years, I've seen people still rock up as new clients to us and they've still got travel expenses to their pro uh, investment properties, which is a no-no. Um, that aside, where, where the ATO is getting really good data is all these third-party sources are sharing the data with the ATO. So you've got the sharing economy platforms like Airbnb and bookings.com, rental bond authorities, property managers, they're all pumping data into the ATO. And the ATO's data matching system is is phenomenal now like they've got just an insane amount of data um so yeah they're going to be looking for deductions that don't add up things that seem bigger compared to last year another big mistake is capital works so you've gone and renovated the kitchen but you've called it an eight thousand dollar repair um but really it's a capital improvement so it's, it's simple to get wrong as well like i think you know some people might deliberately try to get it wrong and then other people just don't know what they don't know um so one to watch out for. Outside of that, other main targets, they've always got heaps. It's gig economy workers. So you imagine during COVID, a lot of people might have picked up a little side hustle. Um, they've jumped on Airtasker or mowed some lawns or who knows what else they've done. They're overclaiming home office. They're doing crypto trades, which is a huge one that, that I cannot believe how many people are coming back to us this year with crypto trades um, reported on their pre-fill report. Um, and yeah, so data matching as well, what happens? So if I'm an accountant, I lodge my tax return as an accountant, they match my tax return against all the other accountants in the country. And if my claims are bigger than everyone else, I get a red flag and I'm on the hit list. So one to watch out for, think about what the other people in your industry also claim as well, so that you know that you're not going to be a red flag and stand out. That is me. Any questions on that guys or pretty straightforward. I'm sure you boys uh, lodge your tax returns pretty squeaky clean. I've got a question. Um, what are the ramifications? Is it as simple as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, it's incorrect, please amend? Or is there is there fines? Or worst case scenario, you might be up for a little bit of tax. 
Mm-hmm. Um, is that correct or does it go further than that? Now, nah, look, if if you've got a good track record, you've lodged your tax on time, um, you know, you haven't been seen to do something negligent or, or so you can be negligent, but not fraudulent. So you might get a warning just, hey, you've made a mistake. Here's an opportunity to amend it. You go and amend it, you pay back the tax, you pay some general interest charge and, and you know, but generally they're pretty lenient. If they then go back a couple of years and find that you've deliberately got it wrong every year or you've got it wrong every year, they can get a little bit more narky, but generally they're pretty good. And it's not to say that, you know, we should all take risks on our tax return because if you get caught doing the wrong thing, there can be fines and penalties and, and it gets pretty nasty pretty fast. But overall, most of the ones that we see are just a, here's your opportunity to fix it. And you go back through and do the right thing and you get left alone pretty much after that. But you might have a flag against your name for the next few years where they are looking to make sure you're getting it right the following years. Jace, one last question I've got. and This is one clients ask me quite a bit. If they subdivide their own home, they've got a big block of land, they subdivide the back of it into Mm -hmm. two blocks. Mm -hmm. Is there capital gains and tax ramifications for doing that? I think it's a good one to talk about. Yeah, definitely, mate. So you've got to imagine your main residence. So your main residence, the house on that block of land. But if you've got an extending block of land out the back and you subdivide it, that block is no longer part of your main residence and it's lost its CGT exemption. So you either sell the house and land as a package, like it's your whole house and land, that's your main residence, that's tax exempt. So you'd have to pay capital gains tax on that. You'd have to sell it all in one lump. If you subdivide blocks and then sell those blocks, CGT on those blocks, you got to pay tax. Okay. It's a good clarification. Well done. Yeah, mate. definitely. And one that, you know, we've we've had people come to and, and think that it was CGT exempt because it was their main residence. Um, so it's a common misconception. So happy to bust that myth. Yeah. And talk to Jason on that um, if you get a chance, because the other thing is how did they come up with the value as well? Overall, there's ratios on that. So yeah, talk to a professional so you're getting the right advice on that type of strategy. So, but, but I did um, hear you mention crypto and I heard Nick mention Twitter. So let me just bring it home, boys. Let me bring it home. The world is going absolutely mad. Marscoin. Now, I had no idea about crypto until this year and you boys bringing it up and hearing it in the market. But um, Marscoin's mission is to decentralize humanity, which I think is not a bad idea because everyone's going to be flat broke on earth investing in these types of speculative stocks. So Mars might be the only viable uh, financial option in the future. But it's dedicated to supporting the settlement on Mars and other space-related projects intending to get humans living and thriving off the planet Earth. What's going on? What's happening on Earth? Are we, are we killing it? There's something going on here. Elon Musk in Feb tweeted an answer to a question saying there will definitely definitely be a Mars coin one day, not knowing that Mars coin already existed. Uh, it was originally created, I think it was 1998, really early days. But Mars coin had an overall value of 2.3 million at the time. The tweet went out at 409 and the price of the crypto went from 11 cents to $2.50 in two hours, valuing the company at 71 mil. By 7.15 that night, the price had dropped back down to 13 cents, now sits at around 5 cents. So imagine people trying to catch on that trend and then getting burnt late in the piece on that one. Um, So again, I just think 
we always talk about it, getting professional advice and making sure you've got a sustainable plan, how people can get burnt if they get into these types of speculative markets. But one tweet, how, how, what is going on out there? And then I dug a bit deeper because we're obviously, we're going to need Mars coin, you know, to buy burgers and stuff when we're, when we're on uh, the planet Mars. But you can now buy property um, on Mars as well. You can buy acre blocks and it's um, buymars.com. I don't recommend you do this, by the way, but it's it's like $29 for selling one acre blocks of land on Mars, which is just incredible. You get a title deed, you get a map and a registration, and um, I, I've, I've had a look at it. So I'm saying buy on Columbia Hills, um, spectacular views, but the sun is a real killer in the afternoon, so be careful. <laughs> but but what, what, what is going on out there? We are by, I mean, are these visionaries? I, I mean, they must be. It's like we will be there one day. Surely there'll be rockets every half an hour coming to Earth. But, mate, are people putting money into all this stuff? Like, talk about high speculative purchasing. It's, it's, it's well, a dangerous game out there at the moment. It concerns not, me a little bit. What do you think about that, boys? Not just speculative, but you're investing for your kids, 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 kids. <laughs> so, because that... Obviously, we're trying to get to Mars, but at what cost? So no wonder the land's cheap because no one can get there. So I don't, I, I don't know. It really makes you wonder, uh, is all this stuff real? Who's investing in this stuff? Um, but also, who, who owns Mars to sell it? Who, who's actually collecting the $29 per acre? Who's claimed the rights to sell Mars? Very good Probably. point. Probably the Twitter guy and <laughs> Jack and Elon. So yeah, it's look, um, they're, but, they're, they're pretty yeah. unique individuals. So there's every chance they're not from Earth. Oh God! It's you just hum- never know, Jace. If we're going to go down a rabbit hole, then let's go right down it. Well, you think you know, little Tommy in 200 years' time, little Tommy Riley. You know, is uh, our, our great grandkids are going to be uh, potentially speaking a bit more seriously about this, but. Uh, it maybe it's just so far out of our comprehension, but I just think about it from a from a financial point of view, and people getting hyped up on these speculative type uh, ideas and just getting burnt. That's the thing that worries me mostly on it. So, but did you uh, mention the price, Marty? What uh, the square meter price of some dirt in Mars on Columbian Hills, close to well the, uh, twenty twenty nine ninety five for an acre. Twenty nine so, ninety five for an acre. Yeah, because you're getting the afternoon sun, so it's and well, you've got better you know, views over the vista. At, so, what's a hundred bucks? If you buy three acres, what's a hundred dollars? Who knows? It could be worth millions one day. It it might help you securing your asset finance too, because you own property. So it's a <laughs> it's a it's a can of worms. It's a can of worms. But I thought it was interesting given what we've been talking about. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, hello at thenumbersgamepodcast.com.au. All right, now we're up to at my favourite part of the show. It's um, it's for you losers and winners out there, but we know by losing it, we're going to really learn some valuable lessons. And today, Nick and Jace are going to take it away in regards to business planning and some of the things can, can obviously go wrong and, and right, but we love what goes wrong. So, Nick, take it away. Thanks, Marty. And look, I don't have a particular losing it story. Um, I went to Jace last night and said, any losing it stories? He said, mate, I only win. So <laughs> it's going to have to be back on you to you tomorrow. So it's obviously we're talking about business plans. And I think what I wanted to cover off is some of the mistakes that we see uh, when people put together business plans. And then we'll go on to it a, bit, a little bit further. But the first thing is, 
business plans need to be simple. And mm. what you see often is a 10, 20-page document, um, which is a business plan. And it's just not something that can be achieved or it's just too convoluted. You know, it's, it's no secret that a lot of the smartest minds in the world in the world will start their business plan on the back of a napkin. So, look, I'm not saying it needs to be on the back, back of a napkin, but for me, I think you should be able to sketch your business plan out almost on one page and yeah. have, you, have your key things that you want to achieve, whether it's in a, a short, medium or long-term um, period, and then from there, build it out. And one of the things I've seen in the past is these fantastic business plans but then no bloody work gets done. And Jace, you could probably talk to this a bit more. So um, too much focus on the plan, not enough focus on how you're actually going to implement it and how you're going to hit the targets and what is your strategy to hit those targets. And second to that, are the targets achievable? Mm. There's no point coming up with a business plan that, that looks great, but there's nothing in that plan that's achievable. It needs to be simplified, particularly in the early stages of business. So you, know, you can focus on hitting those targets or um, hitting those KPIs that you've set for yourself um, and spending less time on a business plan that looks really sexy. Well, and, and on the losing it, you know, this episode, we, we're diving, deep diving into business plans and we're pretty excited about that. So to touch on the losing it side, I see two ends of the scale. It's businesses that don't have a business plan at all and businesses, this is the losing it part, and the businesses that have the most complex, crazy business plans that are so hard to understand. Now, it's these ones that, that are the most frustrating because you can see the business owners gone to this huge amount of effort to put in the work to make a business plan when, as you touched on, it's just too complicated and it makes it so hard to follow. The business plans, the best that we see are simple. It keeps accountability easy. And it also means that when you need to change the plan and make it a little bit liquid and fluid, you've only got to change a couple of pages worth of stuff, not 20 pages worth of data and trying to peel through it and figure out what went wrong or what you need to change. So um, for the ones out there that, that have the complex ones, if you feel like you haven't started to achieve anything towards it, you need to break it back down into something smaller and more achievable. And then even I know we'll touch on it soon is, is those 90 day action plans as well and, and how they come into play part of it. But key audience takeaway, simple business plan. Otherwise you're going to lose it. Yeah. And I'll, I'll back that up because sometimes when people have a vision for their business, and we've talked about this previously, they're almost delusional in the business. And when I've when I've asked people, what's your vision? It's always been visions of grandeur, but they've never had the numbers to back it up in a plan and they've mm -hmm. never had those simple steps. It's like you said, it's bite-sized steps in the right-focused direction and you still need to be able to pivot because, you know, things I know when I've done my business plans originally, they've always ended up differently three or four years later, but they've given an initial focus and an execution route to begin with. And I think what people tend, you tend to find, particularly the people, people entrepreneurial is, or they like to think they're entrepreneurial, they'll have the vision and they'll go, we'll just go and make it happen. But it's very rare that that happens in that way. If you can map out some real simple paths uh, to achieve your results, then it's um, it's going to give you direction and it's really important. But most people don't want to do that work. And you're right, you, you know, when people overcomplicate things, they, they, they get it to the point they can't move because as you go down the rabbit hole, there's always more stuff to consider and there's always more strategy and 
and components that you need to build into that plan. So you have to do it loosely enough that you can take really strong action on that simplification of the plan. And that's where I find a lot of business owners come unstuck. Just what you said, over complex, can't move, or too simplified on the vision, and they can't execute because they don't know where they're going. So yeah, really, really important. There's a there's a sweet spot there that um, we could all follow. Jumping into the next segment, the one percenters, the massive things or the, the small things you can do so that give you the biggest impacts in your life or in your business. On a business plan, I'll touch on what I believe and what I've seen as the basic couple of things. And I think we can probably all expand on stuff that we've done. So a business plan kind of, I'm going to go the seven elements, the seven main elements we see in a business plan. You've got your executive summary. So at the very start, somebody who picks up your business plan should be able to read the executive summary, which really pulls everything together and just spells it all out. Below the executive summary, you want to have a good company description of why you exist and what your purpose is is there to serve, the products and services you'll sell, the market you're going after, strategy and implementation, how you're going to actually do what you want to do. You'll need to know your management team. So who are the key people in the organization? And then even an, an org structure, I think is super important. If you can see the parts of the puzzle, that's super important. And then financial plan and projections, simple as that. So recap, company description, products and services, market analysis, strategy and implementation, organization and management team, financial plan and projections. Now, it sounds like a lot, but it doesn't have to be big kind of um, complex things that are involved in that. And um, I think anyone who's done one before in the past, um, you know, will know that how vital and important it is. But, you know, are they the kind of things you're expecting to hear that's in the business plan? I'm sure you guys have got a couple on the go. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm actually looking into and learning about pitch decks myself because I'm putting together a pitch deck for our business. And this is very similar. So for those who, who want to understand what a pitch deck is, but it's if you're going to investors uh, to borrow money, you create a pitch deck. And yep, I'll pitch- invest. Just let me know how much <laughs> I'm, I'm in. And a pitch deck will cover um, pretty much everything you've just, um, you've just listed there, Jace, plus how much money you need and why yep. you need it. So, but one of the things that I listened to just yesterday from a, a venture capitalist in the US is they don't want to see any more than 13 slides on a pitch deck. Mm. So, you know, you're sitting in front of someone that's possibly going to give you millions of dollars and they want it in no more than 13 slides. Uh, otherwise, it's too complicated for them. So. Yeah, it just, just demonstrates it doesn't matter whether it's small business, whether it's medium business, or you're pitching to a VC business, um, keep it simple and make sure, you know, you should be able to talk to it more, a lot more than mm. just reading um, what you've got listed down. It should be more of a discussion if you're pitching to someone um, on what you put in your slides. So yeah, I thought that was interesting to hear that. Definitely. Yeah, it shows you the importance of, again, not overcomplicating um, people just want to get an understanding of your business and financials and everything you covered, Jace. So, yeah, that's really good. The other thing I learnt is, um, and again, this is this is so simple, but how many people don't know their numbers? Mm. Like, and they, they and they don't want to know. They get caught up with their idea, and it's it's baffled me now. And this is why you need a good accountant or you need a financial controller or someone that is good on understanding the numbers and how to make them work for you in the business as well. And something even I've learned this week, um, you know, I've always worked off ratios, always like to have 25% profit margin, you know, know the gross revenues, know the execution on creating that income. 
but I like something that Jordan Morrison, who's the GM of Innovate, uh, he had a discussion with one of his mentors in forecasting. Um, and what I really loved about that discussion, I'm much more immediate, probably one year at a time with mm. a, a grander vision, you know, beyond that. But the really, the really great takeaway was he goes, if you're forecasting in the future, and let's say I'll, I'll just make it a million bucks to make it easy. Mm. Let's say you're forecasting for $200,000 net profit and you've got a um, million dollars of turnover. You can now be creative in you executing and having confidence in execution to go, how do I maximize that 800,000 expense? So instead of a small business owner going, holy crap, we can't spend too much because we've got to increase uh, our revenues and profit margin, it sort of takes you out of the entrepreneurial side into mm. that corporate understanding of numbers and how to best utilize it at that higher level. And I think that's valuable for business owners. So if you're projecting and you're forecasting and you've got confidence in your execution from you know month to month to year to year, then how do you best utilize those expenses and hire the best people and allocate for the right strategies within that expenditure. I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, the other thing I like there, Marty, is, um, and I think this is something that I know I didn't have in my initial business plan, and it's something we're looking at at the moment, but you mentioned there, Jace, market. What is your market? So not just what is it that you do, but what's the size of that market? How much of that market can you capture? Uh, can you can you take 10%, 15%, 20% of that market? And you know, it flows in really nicely to what you were talking about, Marty, with your projections. There's no point saying you're going to make $10 million if it's a if it's an $11 million market. So that's yep. something that I've learned along the way and, um, and still learning about how much of that market can we actually take mm -hmm. and is everything we're trying to do feasible based on our competitors and whatnot. And it's probably something that's missed a lot. And it makes you ask better questions on the business, right? Nick and I have been having this discussion this week on what value we can provide to specific target markets that we really want because we've got a wide range of clients, but there's the medical space, there's managing directors that the banks don't always do self-employed lending well that mm -hmm. need almost a financial controller in their business for their lending requirements. There's certain markets out there that we can expand upon to become, <clears throat> excuse me, even better in what we do. Yeah, 100%. And that market analysis is one, the, the probably the main ones that I see missed are the actual understanding of the size of the market and how you yeah. tackle them and go after them and, and how your offering suits the market you want to go after. It's all good and well to create a product or a service and say you're going to target the market. But if you've got no idea how many people are in that market yeah. and how to go after them, you've already got holes. And probably the other biggest gap in any business plan we've ever come across is the what goes into the financial forecast and, and the cash flow projections. That's probably one that people miss and go, ah, she'll be right. I'll work it out as I go. Um, it, that's just the most basic one to get right at the start because you need to know if you're going to run out of cash and you need to know if you, if you can fund the yep. business or not. Yeah, and the other thing I've seen, <clears throat> and we talked about payroll tax a, um, a couple of episodes back, but understanding the real cost of a staff member. So mm -hmm. if you ask someone, um, oh, what you cost the staff? Of, well, I've got five staff at 100,000 each, so it's 500,000. You need to understand super. You need to understand payroll tax. Uh, you need to understand work cover. And mm -hmm. you need to understand other things that those staff are going to do within your business, You know, whether it's drink coffee. All these things add up. They're small amounts, but they add up. So the other gap I've seen is people not really understanding the true cost 
of what a staff member is in their business, particularly as they grow, and that again, those little costs become a big, bigger piece of the pie. And, and that brings that brings me to threats as well. Like yeah. again, sometimes we can overcomplicate threats, but just what you said there, Nick, in understanding the real true cost of a staff member and the importance of the maintenance of that staff member and that team member. How do you foster a great culture? How do you ensure they're there for the long term? And also, you know, you want to mitigate um, them leaving. So the retention is always a threat because the cost is really high. So there's so much that needs to go into that thought process that really can make or break your business. Because as we know, you know, a bad team member can cost a fortune just on time, money, and lots of different things. So threats are really, if you can get key threats and understand what they are in your business as well, then it doesn't, ha- again, doesn't have to be overcomplicated. It could be two or three main threats for that year that you're considering, but just to mitigate them. And like I said, know, you know, just, just know where your business could die so you don't go there, mm-hmm. right? It's not, to be, it's not to be frightened. It's just to acknowledge it and just to make sure you've got backup strategy in case something like that could happen. Yeah. yeah, and Marty, that that's really good in a sense of you know what I'll touch on next is not just threats, but your SWOT analysis. So once you've got the first V1 of the business plan, it's something that we say you've got to revisit every year. You can't just make version one and stick it on a shelf and never look at it again. And chances are, as you grow and as you hire more people and bring on key managers and and you know people in your organization, they should be involved in the business plan as well. Because if you get buy-in from the key people around you and your team, you're going to be more likely to be successful at achieving what you've put into that business plan. So a SWOT analysis is something that we'll revisit every year at our annual planning retreat or annual planning day. COVID's put a bit of a bloody dint in how many times we've had to reschedule that at the moment. Um, But what we'll do is we'll survey every single person anonymously inside our organization. They'll write down what they think our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats are. And we'll throw it up on a board in the planning day. Most of the time we look at the strengths and go, yep, cool. We, We know what we're good at and where we play. But we really focus on using the weaknesses, opportunities, and threats to create an action plan of all the things that we need to do for the following 12 months to make our business better. So we can look at a weakness and it might be, you know, some a bit of technology that's not working how we think it was and that's a weakness and it's causing problems for our organization. And we'll make somebody responsible for finding a way to do that better. And if there's a threat or an opportunity, opportunity might be to acquire a new business or to bring on somebody in a different department that we don't have. But knowing that we're doing this every year and setting an action plan from it, um, one of the best things I think business owners can do. And the basics that come out of it, we've done one for a law firm in the past and it was something one of the employees said, the fruit box only arrives every fortnight. We want fruit every week. And from a productivity point of view, how easy is that to know? Geez, well, hang on. It's pretty easy for me to order a fruit box every week instead of every fortnight to keep my team happy. So it's weird the kind of stuff that comes out of it, but yeah, I couldn't recommend that any higher. I love the I love the young the ongoing um, tasks. So for our business, I think yeah, a business plan is highly important. But what's more important for a business like ours that's um, that's quite a few years in is just revisiting that plan annually, like you said, mm-hmm. and then revisiting it revisiting that plan monthly. So you know that. That business plan becomes a foundation for our monthly management meetings, uh, mm-hmm. which the entire management team are on. So, we would that business plan throughout the year would have um, what our goals were, um, when we wanted to achieve them, 
mm-hmm. what were the tasks that we needed to um, to complete to get there, and who was responsible for that task. And that then sets a really good foundation. And we will catch up every month and say, okay, well, this was the task. Did we get there? No, we didn't. We'd have a chat about why we didn't get there. It's usually because other things came up. Um, mm-hmm. We'll push that back. But you're constantly checking in with your annual plan and something you said before, Marty said before, moving it around if you mm. need to based on what's happening. So for us, it's highly important that we catch up every month. Um, and part of that plan, I'll, I'll talk about a few things that we do. Um, part of that plan is obviously cash flow. And we talked about projections. So yeah, we have a cash flow projection that we, that we put in place at the start of every year on where we would like to get to. What we will then do is look at what actually happened in that month. So, you know, we're rolling into August now. So the end of August, what did we expect to achieve in August 2021 versus what have we? Where are the variances? Why are there variances? Can we change them? Were our projections um, too, too far-fetched? So and one of the things I've written down here is what's, what gets measured gets managed. So mm-hmm. if you're not checking back in with that cash flow, having a look at your expenses, having a look at your profits, how are you going to change it so you can make sure September, October, November are where they were meant to be? All of a sudden, you're six months in, you've made no money, but you're not aware of it because you haven't been tracking it. So tracking it is very important um, from a cash flow point of view and an ongoing task point of view. Mm-hmm. Checking back in every month, um, getting off-site. Jo, she mentioned off-site. So for us, when we create our business plans, we do it off-site. We get out of the office environment. For whatever reason, our creative juices get flowing a little bit more when we're not in the office, no distractions. We know we're away 100%. from work. So I'd highly encourage people to get away from the office when they're doing their annual plan. The, the monthly check-ins, that can be done in, in the office. But yeah, and then second to that is the accountability piece. You've got to be accountable. You've got to have someone that's accountable for that task and you've got to check in every month. Yeah, and that's the thing. If if you don't have someone keeping you accountable internally in your business, like if you're a solo operator, or you know you and your team, you know you and your business partners aren't being accountable to each other, that's where you really got to look to a business coach, a mentor, an advisor, you know, an advisory board that we've touched on before, somebody externally to your business that can come in and basically not give you a clip around the ears or whatever, but keep you accountable. Like you know, if you if you've got your projections and you're measuring to actual, if you didn't hit it. Who, who are you answering to and keeping accountable to? So, and look, it depends on the size of when you get to there, but, you know, those, those cash flow projections become, you know, one of the most important things you'll do each month to know that you're on track and, you know, staying accountable is huge. And I love what you said, Nick, like it's awesome saying what gets measured gets managed. If you don't have projections, how do you know that you're on track? Yeah, it's, it's, it's vital. And, one of the big things if you're a one or two man or two uh, women show as a business owner is you need that self-accountability. If you haven't got someone external to drive you, um, you need to be highly effective by being accountable to, your, to yourself. And I remember being in the US and this might not seem like a, a, an area of, of focus, but I was dealing with a lot of small business owners at the time and it was amazing the lack of accountability and just that piece of checking in with them once a week in regards to action steps based on their one-year plan, the difference in performance was oh, it would have to be double, just about, particularly when they're smaller. But it's it's like the the trajectory 
was huge on the key action steps to drive that business. And what Nick was saying was vital because those management meetings, when you're looking at the overview of the forecasting and you've got the execution plans, then even in the sales division, you could micro that to particular statistics and then you're executing in your target markets, you're developing the culture, you're working with salespeople to achieve those targets, but you know really clearly where the business wants to head and what numbers need to fit into that into that projection. And then you go about executing it. So it really gives you a great blueprint, month to month, quarter to quarter, year to year, to be able to execute. It's, it's, it's so not talked about, mm-hmm. but it's the one thing that changes business. So yeah. Yeah. real That's, key. Marty, you know, you touched on it, and I think, you know, part of the show notes, it was talked about, you know, when to hire, like hiring for growth and forecasting, being proactive in your planning. Um, then obviously when you hire, bringing in KPIs and goals. One thing, you know, if you know you want to have 20 team members and it's going to take you this long to do it, Factoring in when you're going to hire, how, what that's going to cost, that should all be in your business plan, not at the micro level of the cost and everything, but at a big level, it should be how many people are involved, you know, and why do we need this many people and what holes are they filling? If you know your, you know, I think, Nick, your your team would be somewhere between 50 and probably on track to grow to 100 at some time in the next couple of years, but you've got that in part of your plan and your forward projections. Yeah, and it's it's a really good point because you're talking about growth versus profit. And um, mm. for our business, we, we've had a really big growth spurt the last couple of years and that's been market driven. So again, this comes back to knowing your market. So you know, how can you project your growth if you don't know your market? So for us now, we're sitting down and, and looking at well, what's our sustainable growth? How do we continue to grow at a sustainable level by hiring staff and, and whatnot, but still having a really profitable business versus a business that sees an opportunity in a market where they have to act really quick. And to act really quick, they have to invest and they have to hire staff. So mm-hmm. you know, Uber's a great example of that. There's an opportunity there and they've got a, um, an opportunity to, to capture and take a market. They can't be worried about profits. They've got to scale up and they've just got to hire as many people as they can, which is why they go to the market to get money. So it's understanding yeah, what your market is, whether you need to grow really quickly, quickly to capture it, and then from there, understanding sustainable growth and how do you actually have a profitable business model that's going to put money back in your pocket. And, and you're right. The plan gives you the opportunity to be proactive in your hiring of talent rather than reactive. What tends to happen is everything, and this happens notoriously within the banking system, that everything blows up and there's not enough, there's not enough staff to actually cater for the opportunity. So then the customer experience is, is, is a bad one. Then the... The personnel experience, the team member experience is about, and we we actually started to go through that with the growth. So we were nimble enough to go. We're going to hire on opportunity that's relevant, but we're going to hire in advance mm. of the workflows. So we were projecting our workflows, mm. and we were always then ahead of the game. And that you know just builds a better culture, and people are happier within the client experience is maintained. So if you're just thinking purely about expense and purely on the numbers only then you can get caught out on that on that wave of new opportunity coming through and everyone can hurt you could lose staff how much is the cost of that you could lose clients there's a bigger cost so to have that plan those projections and then hire proactively so you're ahead of the game that's smart business that yeah. that's really what's because you can always adjust if need be 
But to me, that's where we're getting this accelerated momentum with team members performing at an exceptional level, the market being happier with what we're producing, and it's that flywheel effect of mm -hmm. all that coming together. And that's the foundation of that plan and acknowledging the pain points of the past and adapting proactively. So vital to do that. Uh, you brought up the flywheel, and I, I know we've spoken about this book in the past, but you know, if anyone didn't didn't hear that episode, if you haven't read Good to Great by Jim Collins, it's probably the one business book that you must read, in my opinion. Um, Brilliant book. Just thought I'd drop that in again. Yeah, you remind me, Nick, I've got to give you back The Ride of a Lifetime by Bob Iger, too. That's, That's a good bloody, book. bloody brilliant book. That's a book. ripper. Yeah, so on, on the business plans, guys, it's clear that we love a business plan and we, we think there's huge value in it. I think what I love most about the business plan, I'll touch on two points quickly, is it forces business owners to work on their business. So we see a lot of business owners get stuck working day to day and they you know, get stuck in the daily grind and they don't have this forced time to work on the business, which is what hurts most business owners. Having the business plan up front means they've had to spend the time working on what they're going to do with the business. Revisiting it every year forces and creates routine and habit to doing the business plan and revisiting it and measuring it every month as part of actuals versus projections, again, forces a business owner to work on their business instead of being stuck in it. So that's one thing that I personally love most. One thing that I haven't, that I love doing is competitor analysis. Now there's all, there's so much more to a business plan than the seven kind of steps. And we've obviously talked about way more than that. But for me, competitor analysis as a young growing business was something that that I hold dearly to my heart because I look at, there's some amazing accounting firms out there that accounting industry has been around forever. It's debits and credits. So I look to the businesses that are doing the most incredible things and shout out to some, you know, business like Blue Rock and Business Depot. Like these accounting firms are phenomenal. They've got incredible systems and processes, amazing people and great branding and marketing. And I go, well, I can look to what they're doing well in the market. And it's not copying them, but I can look at what they do and go, how can I do something that resembles what the great players in the market are doing, but in my own way and in the future advisory way and take it back to our team and put our spin on it. So I think as well for business owners out there that are a little, that are, you know, are a little bit lost and unsure what to do, have a look at what your competitors are doing in the market. And I know that if I was a small brokerage firm that was you know, starting to grow and, and, and struggling a little bit or not sure where to turn to next, I'll be looking at a award-winning firm, award-winning brokerage like Innovate and going, how did those guys get there? What was the, the blueprint that those guys have followed to get to that stage? And it takes time to learn these things, but competitor analysis can, analysis can be a good one to fast track your success. Yeah, Chase, results leave, leaves clues. There's no doubt about it. But the thing you said there that I really like that most people don't get they look at competitor analysis from a defensive standpoint. They're mm. going, they've got our market and we have to kill them in order to win, which is not the way to go about it. What you said is absolutely right. And we talk about that flywheel effect. Mm. If you're picking up great things from different businesses and incorporating that into your own business practices, well, guess what? You've cherry picked great ideas. And generally you'll find that great business owners are happy to share information one way or the other mm -hmm. to evolve the industry. So now that's a really different perspective on it, but it works really well and you can all win. There's enough of a market out there for everyone. People people think it's that we've got to get rid of them to do well. It's not the mm -hmm. case. It's a big pie. 
It's like work with great people, learn from them, and pick up processes, even outside of industry as well. You can pick up great things to add to your business that changes the game and gives you that unique point of difference as a business. So I really like the way you're thinking about that and you're looking at that because, again, that gives you an edge overall. Brilliant, mate. Why waste time trying to work it out when someone else has worked it out? Exactly. That's been episode 19 of the Numbers Game Business Plans. Super excited, guys. What what an app. I've loved that. And I think there's going to be more questions that will come from, from our listeners. That And, you know, we're always here for that. Marty, what's been your key takeaway from this one? I think you absolutely need a business plan. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't undersimplify it. Find the sweet, sweet spot. Listen to this episode five times and execute. Nick? What did you take out of it? Uh, what gets measured gets managed. Uh, that's just a great phrase. How do you know where you're tracking if you're not keeping uh, across your numbers? So, you know, give yourself time to pivot if you have to before you get to the end of the year and things haven't worked out. Brilliant stuff, guys. Well, that's episode 19 of The Numbers Game. Tell a friend, tell a business associate. Don't keep us a secret. Get us out there. And... Um, We've enjoyed presenting it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Until next time, cheerio. Game over.